You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 3, Episode 14, Yanya Lalich. If you've seen any cult documentary or any interview about cults in the last probably 10 years, you have likely seen my guest today, Yanya Lalich, being interviewed. She was a member of a controlling group as an adult and then went on to study cult and controlling groups focusing on Heaven's Gate, which we've already discussed on this show. So without further ado, welcome Yanya. Yanya, before you studied cults and controlling groups, you were a member of a high control group. So can we go all the way back and can you tell me about that? Well, when I was 30 years old, I came back to America after living uh, on an island off the coast of Spain for four years. And I often wonder why I left. But anyway, (laughs) Um, so I moved to San Francisco and I was new in town and meeting people. And I met a friend of a friend, (coughs) excuse me, who um, invited me to a study group. And this was in the mid-70s, and so study groups were very common in the big cities, and it was after the Vietnam War. And so people on the left were kind of looking for, you know, what should we get involved in now? So I thought the study group was a good idea. I'd meet new people, and, you know, I like to read, and I have sort of this intellectual bent. I didn't know that the study group was a front for a political organization that was behind it. Um, Anyway, eventually I got recruited into that organization, uh, which was a cult. Uh, Obviously, I didn't know it was a cult. Um, So we were initially we were underground and then we surfaced. We did a lot of political work in San Francisco. And then we sent people to set up what we called stations in other cities and it was a very restrictive group. We spent a lot of time sitting around in circles criticizing each other and um, to get rid of our bourgeois tendencies. And um, so I was a member. I was a high-ranking member. I was in leadership and in the inner circle uh, for about 10 years. And luckily I got out because uh, we finally had our revolution. And when the leader was out of the country at one point, we called together all the members and told them what was really going on behind the scenes. And we had a vote and we voted unanimously to expel her and dissolve the organization. So we all got. You are the pioneer of something called the bounded choice model, which basically boils down to that people who join cults or, or coercive groups it's not that they choose to do these things because of their belief. It's because they actually have a limited set of choices and they try to make the best choice of the bad choices that they have. Can you go into that a little bit more and describe how you arrived at that? 
the way I see it is that once, as a cult member, once you have uh, completely internalized the ideology of the group and the devotion to the leader and the leader's message, uh, which happens as a process through that group's indoctrination program, it's different for every person, it's different in every cult, um, but of course we see parallels. Anyway, once you get to that point where you have internalized all of that, you, you, in a sense, become like a little microcosm of the cult. And at that point, no one really even needs to tell you what to do. You know what you're supposed to do. Um, and that's why people can be all over the world and, and still following uh, the orders and the demands of the cult. Um, so when you're in that place, um, which I call the, a bounded reality, um, you enter a state of mind that I call bounded choice, which means that, yes, you have choices to make. Um, nobody, in most cases, nobody's holding a gun to your head. But you know exactly the decision you need to make in order to stay in the good graces of the group. And for you at that point, you can't imagine life outside of the group. That just seems to be an impossibility to you. So in a sense, your choices and your, quote, free will is altered by the will of the group and the will of the leader. So when people leave cults and controlling groups, but then go back, is that part of that bounded choice reality? I think that's a lot of it. I think people... Um, if people don't, if people leave, if somebody leaves a group and doesn't get the right kind of help and go through the sort of self-examination and recovery process, they can still be influenced by the ideas of the cult that are still in their head, telling them that the cult was right and you were wrong to leave. So you'll you'll kind of be in this state of conflict, um, and so at that point people may decide to go back to the group. Um, it, it, it's really important when someone leaves to get, you know, to go through that post-cult recovery process. Otherwise, you may go back to the group or you may join another group, which, which is what we call cult hopping. E.J. Dixon was on the show to talk about cult hopping, but can you describe what that is? Can you explain it a little bit more? Our country and many countries are, are just riddled with cults. There are lots of cults, lots of different types of cults. Um, and so, you know, as a human being living in this society, you're, you're at risk of being drawn into one of these groups. Um, most people join a cult uh, because they were introduced to it by a friend, a family member, or a coworker. So even though you may have left something and you never quite figured out what that was about, and then someone you know invites you to a workshop or a seminar or a Bible study or whatever, and you'll go because it's hard to say no to people we know, and so you'll take that step again. Um, so, you know, the important thing about getting involved in a cult is that the cult's message has to resonate with you. 
right? Like I always say, I never would have joined a meditation cult because I can't sit still that long. But, you know, a political cult that was going to bring about social change, well, that spoke volumes to me, right? So the message has to somehow resonate with that person. Um, and, and once it does, and they take that first step and then often get you know, what we call love bombed by the people at that first meeting. And so you think you've found these wonderful people and they invite you back and you feel obligated. So you come back to the next thing and then it just kind of goes from there. For you, what was it like getting out? And then what was it like afterward? Did you go into therapy or how did you get through it? Well, yeah, when I got out, it was, you know, I was 40, almost 41 years old. Um, I I immediately moved to New York because I wanted to get away from San Francisco and all the memories of buildings and places I lived and street corners that I sold the newspaper on. And so I moved to New York also because one of my jobs in the cult was to start a publishing house. And so I learned about publishing. I had a lot of contacts. I figured I could get a job in New York. So I I moved there. I did get a job with someone who had been one of our contacts. And um, I lived in Westchester, which is a suburb. And so that was very nice and safe. You know, it was tree lined and, you know, very calm. And I, I worked also in Westchester and I could go to Manhattan when I wanted. So I, I had, you know, I had this kind of feeling of, oh, my God, I just was let out of prison. I mean, I just felt like this enormous sense of freedom. Yet at the same time, I was I was often terrified and and freaked out and not knowing how to function in the world anymore. So, for example, here I was in the cultural Mecca, right, New York City, and I did. I hadn't seen a movie. I'd maybe seen two movies in 10 years. You know, I was completely culturally deprived. So I'd go out on these business lunches and I would just feel like a moron, like I didn't know what to talk about or I didn't know what people were talking about. And so I always felt just completely disjointed and at odds. Um, and then I'd go home at night after work and I'd want to write about my experience because that was always kind of my orientation. And and I would sit at my word processor. Those were word processor days. <laughs> and um, and I would just start crying. Right. And I would you know, I would drink and I would start crying and I would drink some more. And um, I had a boss who didn't pay me very much, but he bought me all the liquor and beer that I wanted. So <laughs> I had this like top brand cognac and stuff. you know. <laughs> so I was just kind of like soothing myself in those ways. And then two things happened. Um, what, one was I was, I, um, I was a proofreader on, at night on the side to earn more money. And I was, and my boss owned this, uh, psychiatric, uh, this publisher of, of psychology and psychiatry books. So I was proofreading the very first book that was written about post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, by Charles Figley. And I was working on the chapter about Vietnam veterans. And I I was I was like reading these paragraphs and 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 I just started crying. And I realized this is what I was going through, these same kinds of reactions and nightmares and outbursts. And 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 I thought, wow, this is like, you know, something's wrong with me. (laughs) you know, And um, 
And then the second thing that happened very shortly after was my boss took me out to dinner for my, it was like my six month anniversary. And he said, you know, Yanya, your work is just great. And your writing is terrific. And you know, you're, you're the perfect employee, but I have to say, you've been here for six months now and I've never heard you laugh and I've never seen you smile. And that just blew me away because I always sort of think of myself as this humorous person, right? Making jokes and things, right? Um, And so the combination of those two things made me realize that I I needed to get into therapy. And, And luckily, there was a clinic in New York at the time, a cult clinic, where the therapist specialized in post cult after effects. And so I found this fabulous therapist who, who truly saved my life. I mean, there were times when I, I really was suicidal. I, I had so much guilt and shame about the things that I had done in the cult as one of the leaders, you know, criticizing people, expelling people, punishing people, putting people under house arrest, breaking up couples, you know, all, all these horrendous things that I had done. And, and so I, I had a lot of that to deal with. And, and just the, the disorientation I felt about, you know, I was 40 years old. I felt like I was 15. You know, I, I, I didn't know how to trust someone to go on dates again. I didn't know, you know, I, I mean, I, I was, you know, I was immobilized a lot of the time. Um, and I, and I had a hard time concentrating. I mean, yeah, I did well at work, but like I'd try to read the newspaper and my eyes would just go blurry. So I started doing things like crossword puzzles, you know, to like get my uh, vocabulary back because all we did was swear at each other in the cult, right? Um, so it was a difficult time. And, and, and I'd say it took, you know, it took probably a good five years before I felt like I knew who I was again. So what made you take the leap from being a survivor to going on to wanting to study this and make it into a profession? To unlock the rest of this episode, visit patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. It's only $5 to unlock over 20 hours of content.